Welcome, everybody, to episode 30 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm here once again with my comrade-in-arms, Bill Rogio. Bill, say hi to everybody. Hello, everyone. We, once again this week, have uh, one of our favorite guests on the show. Uh, Craig Whiteside has decided to join us again. He's been gracious with his time before. He Earlier, you'll remember on one of the earlier episodes of this podcast, he came on to talk about his excellent new book, The ISIS Reader, and we did a a pretty extensive conversation or discussion of that book. And today, Craig has come back. He's going to talk about these new documents that were released by the U.S. government that um, basically deal with interrogations of the jihadi who would go on to become the emir of ISIS. And the files are, are fascinating. They're very interesting. Of course, you have to sort of very carefully analyze them. And there's nobody better to bring on the show to do that than Craig. So, Craig, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, always enjoy uh, your stuff. And you guys are part of the story, uh, if you know it or not. <laughs> you probably know it. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we, we've been following this for a while. So, uh, so a, lot, a lot of the details here uh, sort of uh, piqued our curiosity. And we saw this story come out. And it was one of those things where we hoped it would get a lot more attention. But of course, in this busy sort of news world, it was something that didn't get the attention it deserved. And of course, the headline that came out of these files was that the new emir of ISIS, he's now known as Abu Ibrahim al-Qureshi, was in fact a snitch, that he was somebody who actually gave up intelligence on his comrades in the field there in in Iraq. Um, This is something that um, obviously should be damaging to his credentials or his bona fides in the jihadi ranks. But Craig, why don't you walk us through this a little bit? Why don't you tell us about what the files are, where they came from, how they were put out, and then, sir, we'll get into what you, what you take from them. Sure, and uh, I mean the, that it, it's true that he, these interrogation reports are very, very detailed. Uh, some of them are summaries. Some of them are in his own words, and they do tell his side of the story in just the first three interrogations there's actually 66 interrogations total and and they've only the u.s government's only released these three the first three and we're not sure why and so you would join us craig and ask and then we'll get why the u.s government to release all of them right that's sort of our our shtick yeah as a push for that in other venues other people and certainly that's that's something that i think we we can all get behind is is uh, further releases of these documents, and and I'm not sure why the rest haven't been released. But uh, it's early 2008. He was uh, captured in Mosul. Uh, in um, Milton's description in CTC Sentinel, he actually can link it to an actual article written uh, documenting, you know, quote unquote, the second highest leader of AQI. Uh, captured in Mosul uh, on that particular day in early 2008. So it's there's a lot of good cooperation you can get from open source uh, reporting on it. And um, I think the 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 interrogations uh, talk a lot about individuals that he, he whose names and faces he identifies as part of what appears to be pretty normal interrogation techniques by an American military that's pretty savvy at this by 2008. They already seem to know who everybody is in the organization, uh, his local organization, including his hire, um, his his superiors. And, uh, you know, there's some question whether or not he's just he realizes that, you know, lying at this point would be probably counter counterproductive. Uh, but he, he definitely gives up a, a lot of information and names. And uh, it's just hard to know, like, how normal or typical that is amongst uh, folks, uh, particularly ones that are going up against an American military by 2000, early 2008 really does understand counterinsurgency, kind of like we talked about last time, kind of figured out a lot of different aspects and knows this organization pretty decently by now. And just to clarify, I should have led off with this. These are, these files are put out through the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. Uh, CTC uh, did some analyses. You guys put out some excellent write-ups of this stuff. Uh, you mentioned one of them, and I think it was the CTC Sentinel, right, Craig? I think that's, which is an which is an excellent publication. We we really enjoy reading it. Um, you know, and we think they do a great job under Paul Cruikshank and his team there, and putting out uh, excellent analyses. Uh, we highly recommend it. Um, and so these files, we, we've been going through them too, not nearly the depth that you have, but there's a lot of interesting sort of little tidbits that come out here. And of course, so we're talking about the new Emir of ISIS. This is a guy who, when uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was killed in October of last year in a raid in Idlib province in northwestern Syria, 
a very curious hiding spot for him. Nobody, I don't think anybody really thought he'd be there, you know, at, at, you know of all the places in Syria, but he was. Um, and there's some, you know, some interesting details around what he was doing at the time, which we're hoping to explore in the future. Um, but so Baghdadi's killing this raid, and his replacement is named as Abu Ibrahim al Qureshi. Now, these files deal with this guy, you know, based on his full name, which was given back in the, back in the days as Muhammad Saeed Abdurrahman Amala. Uh, you know, so this is that's his full name in Iraqi. Now, there's a lot there, Craig. There was a lot of mystery about this guy when he was first named as Baghdadi's successor, right? There was a lot of confusion about well, not a lot, but some confusion over who exactly he was and what his biographical details were. Maybe if you had a comment on that, and, and even some confusion over his ethnicity and sort of the, you know, where he fits into sort of the whole uh, sort of complex uh, matrix of ethnicities within Iraq. Yeah, this is um. You know, that's a that's a big topic to tackle because, uh, one, this group, as you both know, kind of prize anonymity for their leaders, even which is kind of kind of it's counterintuitive for most, you know, most insurgent leaders throughout history. Some of them are even iconic and famous to this day long after their death. And, uh, you know, that's part of this cult of personality. But the, the Islamic State almost almost operates off of reverse cult of personality, which is we don't want one like the the, the thing is the caliphate. Uh, you're going to pledge to an individual emir, but it, to them, it's it's almost more important to the caliphate. Now, that could be a defense mechanism for the constant leader targeting that we do, uh, or it's just something that they feel is 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 important. Um, but because of that, they didn't announce his real name. You know, they didn't re- announce Almala's name, and it was kind of a there was a debate about who whether it would be al-Mala, who people know about as being in the top leadership of the Islamic State prior to Abu Bakr getting killed, uh, or if it was somebody else. There was another uh, key leader that was pretty, you know, there was debating who it would be. And so that was one of the debates. Uh, a lot of people didn't think it was al-Mala because he, his, uh, as it says in the interrogation reports, he's from a, a city near Talafer, northern Iraq, that's almost 90%, I think, Turkmen and 10% Arab. So a lot of people doubted that he could claim that Qureshi title that you, that you, um, that they introduced him as Abu Ibrahim al-Qureshi. So, you know, that was also another controversy. There were even reports that he was a former Ba'athist because it tends to be uh, almost a, a link people make. He did have military, in, in reality, he did have military time, but it was as a drafty enlisted and when we when we say Qureshi, what we're talking about is that they're claiming he has descent from the tribe of the Prophet Muhammad. So that's the whole idea: is that basically this guy is you know got the right bona fides in terms of politics and religion in order to be the be the caliph, and that's the whole idea. And that's why the the Turkmen issue. That's why it became a possible sort of issue to to explore because if he did have a Turkmen identity then that lineage becomes even more doubtful but now I always think with this type of stuff I mean who knows what, what the real lineage is there you know I have actually my family I have a very old genealogy in my family and I can tell you going through it that there's all sorts of little divots that you don't you know there's a little there's some fudge factor in even in a, in a well-documented genealogy such as my own you know so uh, I you know who knows but um, but in any event that's where this issue arose now in, in the files it identifies him as Arab so that's sort of, you know, was taken- he self-identified, I think, in, in his interrogation as Arab. So that kind of leans to um, and whether these I think the Islamic State in selecting him, however, you know, however difficult the period of time is for them, you know, strategically, I think they're they take this Qureshi tie thing pretty seriously. Abu Bakr claimed it and his his yep. tribe had a much clearer lineage than than this guy yeah and abu umar before him claimed it as well yeah. and then zarqawi didn't which which kind of makes you wonder you know when we kill zarqawi in 2006 does that kind of open them up for you know being able to have a leader with this particular tie and then continue this this kind of leadership criteria that they've had all three of them well abu umar really wasn't uh, religiously trained, but Abu Bakr obviously had a PhD from Baghdad University. And then uh, the interesting thing that came out of the Maula documents is he had just graduated from Mosul University's Islamic Studies College, uh, I think getting a master's degree there in that. And, yep. and that kind of gave him that religious training that is kind of parallel to Abu Bakr. So he, he almost, Im, you know, mimics or imitates that same career pattern. 
which kind of tells us something about the organization and how it does business in this regard. You know, you, you bring up the Zarqawi succession. I mean, the interesting there, thing there was that Abu uh, Hamza Muhajir, who was Zarqawi's replacement, of course, he didn't have that pedigree either. And of course, it was under his leadership that they declared the Islamic State of Iraq in 2006, and they had Abu Mar al-Baghdadi, who did claim that lineage, sort of as the new head of the Islamic State of Iraq. So they sort of got around that, you know, they had to get around that even with Zarqawi's successor, they had to sort of pick somebody who, you know, was going to be the appropriate sort of lineage for what they wanted to claim there. Um so you know, so looking through looking through this file, you, you got that you pull right out that the fact that he had a master's degree in Quran science from Mosul University. Um, you know, he's fairly young. I mean, he's you know, he's somebody who's you know about forty four now, I guess. Uh, looking at his file, yep, young thirties then. Um, and he's a, a portly fellow at five foot eight, two twenty three. Uh, you know, that's uh, you know, he he wasn't missing the uh, buffet line in the jihadi camps. Um, I could say that as a, a fellow portly fellow. So you know. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I actually, uh, that's a little joke, folks, because I, I foregone my, I, I foregoed my uh, deadlift session so we could record this late, late on a Monday night with Craig. Which, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Bill's getting a chuckle out of that. Um, so let's get into a little bit more about this guy's background and the structure here in Mosul. Bill, you, I know you were looking at these files and you were looking at the the structure and what this has to say about. Um, how the Islamic State evolved in Mosul. I'm sure Craig has a ton of thoughts on that. Maybe you guys want to sort of explore that a little bit through these files. Before we get into that, Craig, I was curious, when did the U.S. government, when were they actually aware of that he, um, uh, that uh, Amala that was actually the emir of the Islamic State? How soon after Baghdadi's uh, uh, death was the U.S. government certain that it was him? Ooh, that's a good question. I thought it was pretty... I thought it was pretty immediate, which gave me the perception at the time. Uh, and this is a year ago. And actually, I, I you know, yeah. I, I could be wrong on this, but uh, I think the U.S. government some, figured it out through some technical means. Uh, and and they were onto it pretty early. And most people, they just didn't give any kind of um, support, supporting evidence for this particular claim. We talked about on the last show how the, the they got kind of got the last one wrong. They they thought Abu Omar was fake, and that it was really you know obviously Abu Hamza had a large role to play all the way to his death. Uh, but the, you know one thing these document release does do is it helps us. It helps conf- well, it helps confirm who Al Mala is if he actually is. The, the Islamic State actually still has not put the two of those together. Uh, the U.S. government and uh, the United Nations and a couple other um, folks have come out and said they're pretty sure that it's him. Yeah, we had Deb and Fitton Brown on last week for an extensive uh, conversation. Hopefully, we won't keep you as long as that, Craig. That was an hour and forty minutes. So, but uh, he was pretty confident. He said the, his team had confirmed pretty early on that Amala was the was in fact the new Emir. So they were pretty confident in that uh, pretty early on as well that that was Baghdadi's successor. Um, yeah, the the reason I ask this, you know, I just, you would think it would be prudent to immediately for the U.S. government, for the United Nations to identify him and release this information. It just puzzles me. It's one year later. What's sort of, I mean, other than historical, I, it just would have helped discredit him in a lot of ways to say, hey, Islamic State, your new emir is a snitch and here's our interrogation sessions with him. I'm sure there's tapes out there that exist and his image. And uh, it just always bothers me, the lack of... Um, uh, our, our failure in information operations like this. And uh, it just, I mean, it, you're, you're right. And, you know, compared to the Islamic state's information operations, which is, which is pretty legendary at this point, uh, they, they have just as much bureaucracy as we do. And yet they produce products. And, yeah. you know, for us, you know, my guess is that it, it was a long period of, uh, uncertainty within, let's say the U S government on what to do with this information, how to, how to utilize it correctly. Does it, does it end up accidentally blowing back on you? And then, you know, as bureaucrats, that's not, that's not what you want. And eventually, you know, try to, they really thought, I think originally that they were going to discredit Maula on the Turkmen. And then, you know, again, depth of knowledge of societies and also Tom's point that genealogy and ancestry is, is, you know, it's pretty complex for most families. Never mind, uh, you know, uh, Arabs uh, or even Turkmen's or Arabized Turkmen in the Middle East, and and the you know most folks who have knowledge in the area. I think Hassan Hassan came out pretty early and was like, e- 
there's there's plenty there's plenty of ways that he could be a Qureshi and be from that particular area and that tribe. As a matter of fact, it's not as clear as as Abu Bakr's was or Abu Umar's. Who they have kind of a tribes that are very much visible as um, you know descendants of the Prophet uh, or lineage from the Prophet. So, uh, but you know why why it took so long? It's it's pretty. You know, we still haven't learned that. You know, we've got to get out quickly. And like you said, it's kind of buried in buried in the news now, but it might have been much more effective at the time. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, if you think if we were forward thinking, we would have answered these questions long ago. We would have had we have all these interrogations. We have all these profiles. I'm not going to belabor this point. I just find it. it it's just it shocks me that, you know, I guess at that point, what, 18 years into this war that we still haven't figured out how to use information that we've obtained on the battlefield and interrogations and how to take this, use this and discredit our enemies. And make no mistake, it, it, I, I think it would have, you know, whatever whatever negatives may be out there, there's, there certainly had to be positives to, to labeling this guy and, and proving that he's a snitch to his fellow jihadists because someone like him with his credentials, with his background and now rising to the top level of leadership. I mean, look, no one, no one likes snitches. I don't care if you're, you know, you're an American or you're a jihadist, whatever you are, that's, that's sort of the lowest of the low. And I think it would have had some sort of impact. So am I reading this file correctly, Craig, that um, it seems like he had some proficiency in speaking English. Is that right? Uh, at, At the time he was captured. I think that's what it says. Languages and proficiency, and then after en, it has a p in parens, which I am assuming means proficient. You know, and so it's hard to tell how how proficient that was. Yeah, I, I really couldn't make much out of it, and they didn't really go into depth on that. But it, it'd be interested yeah. to to see. Yeah, I mean, he was educated. Like I said, he had, he was educated, and he was being he was educating himself. That's one of the questions we had. Is you know during you know anywhere from two thousand five to seven, which is a pretty critical time in Mosul, as Bill knows. I'm sure he was there. He's 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 in school. And so you wonder if that's not part of a plan or some kind of grooming or even um, some of the ashes. There's a lot of other things going on. And yet he's pretty dedicated to school. But ironically, that's exactly Abu Bakr, too. Abu Bakr's getting his Ph.D. during this time period. So it yeah. also makes you wonder, like, you know, there's a lot of people are asking people to pick sides at this particular point or get on this team or that team, all the different teams that are out there. And so, but he kept, he keeps his cards pretty close and he, he did as well with his language capabilities. I've not really been able to see anything beyond what you just mentioned. And, oh, Craig, to your point about the, yes, I was in Mosul in the, the I want to say it was March, April, 2008. And I remember driving by Mosul University and I was with some uh, U.S. military uh, tra- um, transition teams or training teams. And uh, so we were with, obviously, with Iraqi army units and the Iraqis, while driving by the mosque, would point to it and say, a lot of bad things are happening there. And obviously, you know, guys like Amala were studying. Now, is that the same mosque that's mentioned in the files building? Because they mentioned, no, you know, Imam at Al-Furqan Mosque. I don't don't know much. I'm not certain. I'm not certain. I didn't couldn't find it. It's pretty small. Yeah, I couldn't. But it's near the university. Yeah. And and the. The whole university area at that time was considered to be enemy territory. Uh, the that entire area, they just said, they just basically uh, said only bad things came from there. Was the, the view of of the Iraqi army and the Iraqi police in the area? You so look it, at the Anbar insurgency study that the army yep. released oh. last year. It's a uh, it's in Anbar, of course, but it. I mean, they do the same thing in Anbar University in Ramadi. Yep, it's exactly. and the and the yep. Islamic State, the early Islamic State, has a plan to influence not only its curriculum but to recruit people out of it particularly for for critical areas that they're short of which is sharia they they don't have the bench they don't have sharia experts they didn't have them at the time they had to develop their own and craig that's what i mean what he says he joins the islamic state in 2007 right by by almost immediately he rises to the top uh, as a top sharia official in the group does he not it, that's what it says, and that's another one that kind of stretches people's mat. It stretched all of our kind of, or it triggered our suspicions. Like how, he, he, we think he might have had a, a an association with the group sure. long before. I feel like that's something that I'm coming to understand is that the group had they a had bench? a lot of yeah, they had associations with people and allowed people to do what they were going to. And to, you know, just to, to kind of cooperate, collaborate, 
uh, do joint operations together. But then after a while, particularly once the Islamic State declares itself, I think the I think the windows start shortening, and they're like, okay, yeah, the the uh, it's time to get off the fence now. Um, they're using leverage like that, and I think he gets caught up in that. But it's it's really interesting. He joins at a time where the organization as itself is about to go off the cliff. Right, a couple months later, the Sawa is full force. They're running for the hills, and yet he's Mosul's different. You, know, you probably felt that at the time, yes. but Mosul. And um, yeah, so there's a lot of weird kind of portents that that relate to today now, or at least 2014 when when the group kind of consolidates power. And and just a little backstory on that, where Mosul was in 2008. By I would say by late 2007, much of um, Anbar, Baghdad, Salahuddin province, uh, and a large areas of Dial were the insurg- the Islamic State of Iraq's insurgency was largely suppressed. By March 2008, when I arrived in Mosul, that was the 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 sort of the last hotbed. Uh, where the Islamic State still of Iraq still controlled territory. So, yeah, Craig's absolutely right. I mean, you know, you went through Baghdad I, to go through Baghdad to embed, you know, to embed into Mosul. It was just a different it was a different feel in Baghdad and and other parts of Iraq than when you got to Mosul, where it was it was a, it was a slugfest. I mean, you know, I was uh, at a military base in Iraq at uh, um that, uh, you know, two days prior to a ma- one of the largest suicide attacks in Iraq that was actually carried out by a Guantanamo Bay, Bay detainee. So, yeah, it was it was a very interesting time. The Islamic State of Iraq was fighting for its life and fighting for control of the insurgency uh, to to meet to maintain its relevance in Mosul. Yeah. And that's when he joins. Right. He, he becomes right. a dedicated member at like this critical juncture where people are right. deserting the group, you know, people right. who are kind of like, ah, oh, this is not for me. And so I think it t- that tells you a lot about them, I think. Sure. So let's get a little bit into the um, sort of how they uh, set up shop in Mosul, because the defiles really, uh, you know, if you put together the, the sort of connective tissue here over time, you know, one of the things that I was talking about just a couple of weeks ago with somebody was, you know, when they declare um, the caliphate in Mosul in 2014, you know, this is not an accident, right? I mean, this is not like they just picked Mosul out of a hat at the last second. There are a lot of historical reasons for picking Mosul, but there are a lot of also, there's a whole history of the Islamic State organization in and around Mosul, you know, and, and one of the things we've been pulling out of the files uh, recovered from Bin Laden's compound were some biographies of Zarqawi that were included in the compound, including an audio file that was a biography that was recorded by somebody who knew Zarqawi um, and says, you know, and basically points to Zarqawi very early on laying down some roots in Mosul himself, um, you know, and organizing the proto-insurgency there. Um, you know, there's a, there's a long story there. And as I read through these files, it's just striking to me when you look at the, the infrastructure that they're putting in place, the administrative infrastructure, the govern, you know, the proto-governance infrastructure, the Sharia infrastructure for the, you know, Islamic law that they're going to try and implement and why a guy like this becomes so important to them. You could see very early on, they're laying out the structure for a state. Like they met, they actually met when they said they're the Islamic state of Iraq in 2006, they meant it. They were, they were laying out the infrastructure to try and build a state. Maybe talk a little bit about how you, how do you view that in Mosul and anything we can tell about how that evolved over time uh, from this point on. Yeah, I mean, again, I'd, I'd welcome people to go to the CTC website and pull pull the. They actually have the actual um, interrogation reports there, the raw uh, summaries, and in some cases, on words. And you can you can kind of see what uh, Tom's talking about. The the you know, there's the structure itself is still Al Qaeda structure. It's really interesting, kind of as you guys have talked about in the past. It's still Al Qaeda structure as far as the different stovepipes. But, you know, the levels, how they're layering down into Mosul, and then there's a northern region, and then there's the, the top uh, leadership, and all of it's identical all the way down, and they're constantly filling these positions as they get taken off the battlefield by the United States or even other rivals. And so, that you know, that's pretty impressive. You can see that. I think that story is well known. And then, you know, of course, the Islamic State's tremendously famous for once they take over Mosul, is then expanding that structure into, you know you know, 16 different departments that have a lot to do with population control and, and services, providing services for the population, all that other stuff. And it all starts here at, in 2007, like you're saying. Uh, so um, the, there's two points I'd pull out that most people, you know, most, like I say, I welcome people to, to, to see for themselves is they're pretty, they're not that long either. Uh, there, there's lots of information in them. 
But one thing that he's trying to do is he, they're already trying to kind of cross pollinate some of the branches and in, in the, in the wire stick diagrams, it's just like military people. It's the Sharia people here, the administrative people here and so on. And yet, He's trying to get Sharia people into each of the different wings so that the military has Sharia people in it. The security people have to, because they're going around killing people, they actually have to have Sharia people there to kind of make judgments on whether or not what they're, you know, whether or not how much of an apostate these people are. So this is really critical. It's almost like embedding a JAG officer with like, you know, uh, a SEAL unit downrange that's that's tar- doing targeting and they have to kind of see if it fits uh, authorities or, you know, authorizations for the use of force. So there's there's this kind of weird dynamics going on, but he's also doing it in the criminal enterprise. He's going through saying, well, we can, you know, this is legit to steal because it belongs to apostates. No, these are these are good Sunni Iraqis and therefore we can't take money from them other than normal taxation, right? We can't just abscond with the entire thing. I think when he's captured, he actually has a bill of sale for like, you know, thousands of pounds of wheat, which he's involved in because the Sharia guy is also involved in the criminal enterprise, which is, it's kind of fascinating how they're cross pollinating. And then you can see the seeds for, for what eventually becomes uh, in the Islamic state. Yeah, Craig, when I read that, I almost thought of like a, a commissars in the Soviet army in, in some ways. Yeah, That's I mean, really they're exactly, out. yeah, they're, yeah, I mean, outside of the, yeah, outside of the communist ideology, but it, right. it's very much, it's very much like that. And um, I'm, I'm working on a project for that, but you can see that the French did it as well during the French Revolution. They called them uh, representatives on mission, and that was to make sure that they were ideologically correct. And, and these guys do it as well. And so um, that's a pretty interesting observation that, that I've been digging into very recently. So it's kind of kind of funny. The, the other the other interesting thing is there's still all of this talk of of hierarchy and the structure, you know, sometimes gives a perception that the Islamic State's this huge, massive bureaucracy yeah. like ours. Right. Like right. like the U.S. government. But it's not because it's constantly changing. It's constantly not just the people, but the, the structure is actually changing constantly. And like, for example, in these documents, um, he's the Sharia of Mosul, but they stick Alfrican media, which is the top level media mm-hmm. outlet. They stick it under him yeah. for he's yeah. supervising it. So that, I mean, that would, that we can't even comprehend like, you know, the U S government sticking, you know, sticking its, its stuff here in NPS and saying, Hey, you guys know what you're doing out there on info ops. Why don't you guys supervise uh, messaging for the, for, for the top leadership? Let's, why don't you guys screen the president's speeches going on? I you know, it's an absurd analogy, but you, you, I mean, that, that kind of flexibility is just kind of interesting to me. Uh, and it's really interesting from where they come from. I mean, their, their media unit is the most centralized part of them. And yet they're, they stick it under this, the future caliph in Mosul. And Al-Furqan is still the, the central media hub for the group to this day, to this day. Yeah. I mean, you just released a message from Al-Furqan in the last 20, 24 hours, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, something we're processing and get up at Long War Journal here, uh, you know, get my act together. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, they, they're still pu- pushing out messages, you know, uh, regularly through Al-Furqan. Now, let's, uh, Bill, you had something you wanted to weigh in there with a little bit on the structure or you want to go through this? Yeah, I, I, it was a, just an op- a quick, a quick, quick question. It's a, This is really nerdy. I think only you, you, me, and Tom will probably appreciate this and maybe three other people out there. Uh, so I noticed that the in their documents, they talk about the right side and the left side of Mosul. Well, that's where um, I was going, Bill, so this is good. Okay. <laughs> so, oh, good, yeah. yes. Yeah, so fellow nerds think alike, what yeah. can I say? Um, and in U.S. military and the Iraqi military are actually organized along the same structures. Obviously, not we didn't call it left and right we called it east and western Mosul what I have a theory about this I think I know the answer but I'm curious as to what what you think about that why why was Mosul what was it about Mosul that uh, made it organizationally sound to divide it in half um yeah that's a that's a good question I don't, I don't really I know that's always been divided that way and talked about this way but I don't actually know why other than um, my, my guess would be ethna, uh, ethnicities and, you know, the, the Kurds are on one side, but then again, yeah. the, the university is over there and that's where he kind of, you know, when he was in Mosul hung out apparently both at the mosque and for, for his studies, whereas, you know, the traditional, um, you know, is the right side of Mosul, which is the older part of the city and, and tended to be where I think the, uh, 
Islamic states, you know, was able to operate a little bit free, more free than from, but I don't know. That's yeah. Yeah, you know, with the with the American and the Iraqi side, the, the the Kurdish was stronger on the on their side of the city. So you had the, the primarily two, yeah, the right, the two primarily Kurdish units. Um, actually, there were almost predominantly Kurdish units. There were two brigades of of that division were based there, and then the um, the the Sunni slash Shia um, predominantly units were on the right side. I always felt, and I always felt that there that the Kurdish influence played a, a role in the Islamic State's organization as well. So now, just curious if you had any insight into that. It probably also, from what I understand, well, I've I've heard from a number of people, and this is just an opinion that it was Kurdish overreach in Mosul that kind of also helped set the conditions for things yeah. like the fact there's never a Sawa, there's never an awakening in Mosul, right? I mean, it's yeah. everywhere else. Diyala, which is is a crazy nut house, uh, Ambar, of course, even Northern Babel and Saladin have have awakenings. Nineveh never. Nineveh, well, there was one <laughs> town, but. It did, but it was it was inconsequential. I remember seeing reports of it, and they tried to be the tried to puff it up as being important, but it wasn't. It was either the Kurdish units, and I, I remember you know driving around and the Kurd the Kurds, and as you mentioned, the overreach, they were displaying their flags at their own checkpoints and not the Iraqi army flags. And I was I remember turning to the American commanders that I was with. I was like, "Man, that can't be good. That's that's got to be helping the uh, the Islamic State of Iraq. That's got to be pissing off the the Iraqi generals." And you know, so yeah, a lot of lot of tensions up there in the north. A lot of divisions that really played into Al Qaeda's hands, uh, Islamic State of Iraq's hands at, at that time. You know, you could see in the in the files too a couple of other things. So first of all, when he starts uh, sort of giving details, they're showing him pictures, obviously, of his fellow members of the ISI. Islamic State of Iraq, uh, and he starts identifying them. He gives, he gives a lot of details about all Furqan Media, so he clearly knows these guys who are running it, right? I mean, he's, he's identifying them by photos, so he's it's you know it's obviously a piece of intelligence that says you know this guy's not just boasting about his ties to the Furqan Media and his role here, and it's just a very interesting detail to see. The other thing is you could see that they you could see that they're already reshuffling a little bit. They talk a little bit about transferring personnel, including Abu, Abu Abdullah Al Shami, who was the Wali of of Mosul. Uh, interesting with his Nome de Guerre. Obviously, he's not a native, or at least the Nome de Guerre implies he's not a native. Obviously, of Mosul, which we we know, um, and so that's an interesting factoid about him. And they're moving things around. But you could see too that some of the guys he identifies had already uh, supposedly moved to Syria. That some of these guys had moved across the border, border and operating in. Syria. Syria, according to what he was telling interrogators, and I thought maybe it's sort of an interesting, another interesting sort of detail that stuck out to me reading through these files. Because again, it, we know from other sources that you know there are logistical pipelines going through Syria at this point into Iraq. You know, Bill liked to say you know early on in the, the Syrian war uh, that basically what happened was that pipeline turned back against the Assad regime. You know, that you know, basically it was something that General Petraeus, if you can, you could see in, in leaked cables, was warning the Assad regime about saying that this was going to come back to bite them. The fact that they were hosting all this in, in Syria going into Iraq. But you can see other personnel in these files mentioned as are people who are living across the border in Syria, allegedly in these files. Um, you know, and, and you can see the reshuffling and there's just a lot of other nitty gritty details about the personnel. And I was wondering if you had anything that you wanted to share about that. Yeah, that the, 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 the individual you're talking about <clears throat> was relieved from the being the Wali of Mosul and uh, went back to Syria, which is where he was from originally, uh, if I remember the <clears throat> that timeline right. And um, the, the, the interesting reason it has to do with, with infighting, going back to what we were talking about earlier, is a, a bunch of uh, Mujahideen army, which was a rival group of the Islamic State, somewhat Islamized. And uh, four of them had joined the Islamic State as part of the creation of the Islamic State of Iraq and this, you know, supposed merger of tribes and groups and Al Qaeda in Iraq and all this other stuff, and but then the then the tribal awakening happens and they 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 renege and because again the Islamic State had the thing I didn't know before was that they played fast and loose with associates and you know smaller groups that even contract stuff out, give people money and say go do attacks on the Americans or whatever or the Iraqis. And uh, but after once you joined, you you joined and and they they killed four senior leaders of the Mujahideen army. That's what the Wali decided It's really well within their takfir ideology. So he's just doing what the organization told him to do. And yet they stack him for it, probably just to mitigate some fallout. So there's still all of this, 
you know, there, it's still a black hole. Like what is happening between the Islamic state and all of its rival groups. And, and out of that, I think that's how Almala ends up being the deputy Wali because they sacked the, the security Amir who probably had, a, who probably did the killing and they, and they sacked the Wali himself and either he didn't have permission to do what he was doing from the higher or what, but this is another problem the Islamic State has. They're decentralized insurgency, but they 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 really want to be able to weigh in on consequential political killings like this. And so that whole discussion with Syria and all on all the different other rival groups. And I think these are things Al Mala had to weigh in on as the Sharia when he was when he was the Sharia and when he was the deputy is the legality of kind of inner jihadi, inner resistance rivalry um, stuff. And that, that was really critical, obviously, during the awakening slash uh, surge period, which, which the Islamic State's under a lot of pressure at this point. And Craig, there were similar problems with Ansar al-Sunnah, which uh, can, can you explain that as well? Uh, you, you, Tom uh, preempted my, my question with that. That's why, Tom, when you see me laughing, I... There's another incident where Ansar al-Sun has actually kill, killed two suspected Iraqi policemen, and it turns out they're actually insurgents, which is, you know, a, a story in and of itself, I'm sure, yeah, but sure. not a not a not a unique one. But um, the it, it turns out one of them's an Islamic State person, the other one belongs to the Islamic Army, and so they have a big Sharia kind of, you know, they have a Sharia council about it, and El Malo's in it, and he's the one, you know, trying to you know, trying to get retribution for the killing of their soldier. And so is the Islamic army. Uh, but it's Ansar al-Sunnah who does it. And they're the, they're the ones who are very, you know, ideologically identical almost to the Islamic state, except they won't join them for a variety of reasons. Uh, eventually do by 2014, I think, you know, eventually join the Islamic state, but, but certainly, um, it's an interesting and, story. In fact, on that, on the Ansar al-Sunnah, I mean, one of the things we've been documenting in the, the Bin Laden files is that, you know, Ansar al-Sunnah and its emirs are constantly complaining about the Islamic State of Iraq to al-Qaeda senior leadership. And the response from al-Qaeda senior leadership is you should just join with your brothers, basically want to resolve these issues. But they're, they're, not, they're not taking Ansar al-Sunnah's side in the fight against the Islamic State of Iraq, although they're hearing them out. Um, but what's interesting about that is that a lot of the objections Ansar al-Sunnah is raising during this period are the problems that arise that actually come back to bite al-Qaeda senior leadership you know, in the 2013-2014 period. I mean, Ansar al-Sunnah, you know, basically, if you look back to their files and their letters and everything they were saying, they basically have the right to say, we told you so, essentially, you know. Uh, now, some of those guys, are, those guys are dead now but or captured, but, you know, they, they basically were complaining about the same types of problems that ended up boiling over and becoming central to sort of the al-Qaeda rivalry. Yeah, I think I think so, but they're all, it's almost like the, it's almost like the larger al-Qaeda Islamic State rivalry. There's a lot of, they're blaming each other for stuff that each other is doing anyways. I mean, Ansar al-Sunnah in yeah. this particular case is killing Iraqi policemen. Well, what's yeah. their major complaint with the Islamic State at the time? Killing Iraqi mm -hmm. Sunnis. Yeah, right. Right. And that, I mean, they're all doing the same thing. Um, and you can understand the frustration for al-Qaeda, which is, it, it show, you know, they're trying to get these people to work together. And especially the ideologues that, you know, the Salafis at least, let's get the Salafis together uh, the real, the true Salafi jihadists, let's put it that way, because, you know, there's varying degrees of Salafi even in Iraq. Sure. And at the end of the day, they couldn't do it, which I think shows the real failures of, of their ability to get two very similar groups together. Um, and the Islamic State, I, I don't, I think they tried very hard to get uh, Ansar al-Sunnah on board, but it was always going to be their way. And I think the Ansar al-Sunnah leadership was like, no, we're not, we're not, we, we were the original ones. I think it was a little bit of a jihadi yeah. pride thing. We were the, we were the first ones here. We were the ones who helped Zarqawi when he came into Iraq. Yeah. He stole our guys from us and started what became a, a larger, more powerful organization. And they, they just have difficulty at the end dealing with it. And the U S helps because by, I think in 2007, we, capture their their leader and release him under the promise that he'll look he'll look at reconciling with the iraqi government um i think it was al shafi yep. and it's a yep. pretty famous story of turning an insurgent and but that splits yep. the organization because half of ansar al soon is like we can't negotiate with the iraqi government we're salafi jihadists and the other half's like well maybe we should and and, and it kind of just it goes it goes downhill for them after that but it does take a few years yeah but yeah, again, Mala is like right at the center of this again, just weirdly, yeah. you know, at he's in the middle of this historical dispute and 
he's well placed to kind of inform the Islamic State on how to deal with these rivals throughout this period and into the future and even even now. Yeah, it's all soon it's still around, you know. Yeah, some of the, the Shafi correspondence that made its way through to Bin Laden's compound, we've been processing that, and it's sort of some interesting how that was all working out because one of the guys who was funneling his stuff back and forth to Bin Laden, of course, was Atiyah Abdel Rahman, his longtime right-hand man, who was, according to the Treasury Department, and we know from other sources, was the primary liaison for al-Qaeda to Iran. And so some of this time, you know, as you can see in the files, Rahman's in Iran passing the stuff, you know, must have been a very uncomfortable sort of situation, you know. And there's a funny anecdote on that, too, we're going to get to eventually on on, on Rahman basically saying, you know, Qaeda at one point goes to try and turn up the pressure on Iran. And there's some funny letters from Rahman saying basically, whoa, okay, hey, I'm confused here, uh, you know. And, and basically the, the subtext, if you know the details are, he was in Iran and was worried that, you know, basically they're gonna, you know, <laughs> if he turned up too much, He's going to get caught in the crossfire, you know, uh, but of course it didn't happen, but there's a lot more to that story too. But, um, you know, I'm just going through all this, you know, I, you, so you see that they're structured between the left and the, and the right or the West and the East of, of Mosul. And then they have, they have sectors within that even. So it's not just the left and right, but they also have the North and South sectors. And I'm just curious how much, do we know how much of this sort of infrastructure, like you said, Craig, that this basically evolved over time, of course, it's constantly changing, but it's, is this sort of the same general architecture you think was in place basically when they declare uh, the caliphate in 2014 or something similar to that in Mosul, or was it sort of just totally different by that point in time? Yeah, they use the left. Uh, I've seen, uh, I'm working on the ISIS files over at GW, uh, looking at the Department of Soldiers, like the their their actual, you know, their DOD version. And it's it's pretty complex, but they, they assign units. They might even assign the same division to do both sides of the river. Uh, but different brigades are one's a left side unit, one's a right side unit. And they're, they must be under the control of those sector leaders as, as they call it the sector. And then um, those fall under, it's, it's unclear whether they fall under like the Nineveh Wally or the actual um, department of soldiers, Amir. And I think the Amir is more like the, I think they almost have a structure like the U S military where the Department of Soldiers Amir just is worried about, you know, soldier training, man training, equip issues. And the local, the Wali is really uh, in charge of defending his particular area. Um, and so, yeah, but I mean, they haven't really, the, the, the boundaries seem to have changed a lot over time based off of conditions, but generally they're kind of sector, uh, region, city, and uh, those kind of things, and province, eventually provinces, which which came about, I think, in 07. It's kind of a, a long transition, 07, 08. And then, uh, but those are all pretty much the same. Craig, um, there was a, one individual mentioned in this document. His name was Abu Qazara. Um, he was uh, killed uh, by the United States in, in 2008. And at the time, he was identified as being a Swedish citizen. He's also Moroccan. Um, and he was said to be uh, in charge of the northern region area. That's a quote from Amala. Um, it was later determined um, that he, he was the – I'm sorry. It, the U.S. military said that, uh, that Kozwara had also trained in camps in Pakistan and Afghanistan in the 1990s. Um, what can you tell us about him additionally from, from these documents? And what else do you know about Abu Khazar? He's definitely an interesting character, you know, to, to see someone like him rise. To, he, he eventually became the, um, the deputy emir, at least the U.S. military claim, was the deputy emir of the Islamic State of Iraq at, at the time as well. So is there anything else you could tell us about him and uh, what, from the files? It's, you know, it's, it's, very difficult, it's very difficult for us to try to figure out who – some of the folks are that Almala was talking about, but it's clear. It's not, it's completely clear who he's talking about when he's talking about Abu Qaswara. One, the, all of the nicknames actually match up with Abu Qaswara because he named Abu Sara, Abu Jasim, and Abu Qaswara. So he gives all three yeah. of the, of his kunyas and then, and then tells the U S military who he probably suspects already knows that he's a foreigner and he speaks, he's not sure where he's from, but he speaks with a different language. He speaks with a different accent and Arabic, but, but not with an Iraqi accent. He is not from Iraqi uh, Iraq and he's not from the local area. And so um, definitely um, identifying him as a foreign fighter uh, traveler, if you will. So um, 
and and that's his boss's boss. So whether he was, you know, whether you know when he was the deputy Wali or even just the Sharia, the head Sharia of Mosul, which he was for a longer period of time during this this kind of year that he's with the Islamic State before he becomes before he's detained, roughly a year. And um, so he gets captured in early 08. And yep, by, I mean, within a few months of his capture, Koswara is 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 hunted down and killed by the U.S. military. So it, it's it's impossible. I mean, a lot of people were captured about that same time period as him, and they probably all might have uh, given up Koswara as well. But there's there's you know, that's the possibility that it was that it was Maula's identification uh, just kind of helped paint a picture that the, the U.S. military already suspected. They knew who, who Abu Kaswara was. And um, as far as him being the second in command, you know, the, there's a joke, and I'm sure you've probably told it <laughs> a thousand times, Bill. Oh, yeah. Al-Qaeda is number, number three? <laughs> number two, number three. Yeah. I don't think that's how any of that worked. Right. So uh, he was the northern region, though, and that's what I'm saying. They were trying to figure out ways that, to manage, you know, the insurgency in different ways. And they had, I think they've, I've seen as early as 06 them having that northernish kind of Amir, but I think again it goes back to they have structure, but it's constantly fluid and, and it's fluctuating. And so they had somebody who was roughly in charge of the north. They they had definitely someone in charge of the south, south of Baghdad, and then people in the center and then out west. And they kind of kind of had it that that way. But I think you know obviously when things fall apart in the south, Anbar gets flipped pretty hard uh with a with a heavy tribal influence there compared to other places and then they get booted out of diala and and in late 07 early 08 you can imagine that the northern emir is the guy so i mean i can understand why people called him yeah. the number two because he's probably the most influential regional emir in the islamic state at the time and to the point where again they're sticking resource they're sticking centralized resources under you know, under not him because he's probably just a few people. They they probably didn't have a robust northern region, uh, you know, command, if you will. But but certainly, you know, Mosul was pretty robust, as you can see from the documents. Ro- Mosul's very very yeah. Robust. I mean, you know, one of the things we Bill and I have talked about a lot, and I was curious to get your perspective on this. And it's sort of speculative, but that's okay. It's our podcast, so we could speculate, Craig. That's what we could do here. Uh, you know, we've we talked for years about you know, and you've been following this too, so you know the dy- dynamic. The U.S kills or captures top leadership in these organizations somebody else pops up now it's not that the killing and capture of high value targets doesn't matter it does matter it creates you know disruptions in communication disruptions in leadership you know you know, obviously i think you could you could argue that that fueled the sort of the rivalry between al-qaeda and the islamic state in some ways you know uh, i think they probably contributed to it um uh, and you can point to other disruptions you know the pakistani taliban we've covered them as another case study sort of you know they their last leader was a real dud, we think, and that was caused a lot of problems for them in the turnover. So obviously targeting their senior leadership has mattered there. But what do you think now about the Islamic State? of uh, Islamic State? Uh, you know, from the Islamic State of Iraq to now, you have Mala now as the new emir. What do you think about him in terms of everything you can gather? And of course, this is somewhat speculative, but again, you know, we're, we're having a little fun here. What do you think in terms of, of his, you know, he, if you go through the chain of succession now, the Islamic State of Iraq, you had... Abu Amar al-Baghdadi with Abu Hamza as his right-hand man. You had Abu Baker al-Baghdadi. And now you've got really the third emir after the declaration of the Islamic State. Um, you've got the third emir. What do you think of this guy in terms of his abilities, uh, you know, in terms of where he's coming from and how he compares to his uh, predecessor? Yeah, it's hard. Um, it's, it's a little bit hard to tell. I think he's a pretty careful, pretty careful person just from – listening he's he's an opportunist and a pragmatist you can see that from his interrogations you know once he realizes that the u.s military knows a little bit about his organization or yeah. you know when they lay out the exact number of people to this he particular stops pretending layer, to be a sufi he stops pretending to be a sufi yeah he, he right. realizes right. that yeah, right. <laughs> that his impression of the you know the american military this is not a reader of rumi he's just not a reader of rumi he's not reading you know uh, you know poetry in, in in a way that uh, is sort of the more spiritual nature of islam he's got a very different different view of it than than sort of the yeah. sufis you know i mean just the way he kind of jumps into the organization and it seems like he's he's it's not a culture shock to him he's making decisions he's uh, and he talks about those he talks about his role in the early on um i haven't seen him pop up a lot since but that's that's not much different than abu Bakr in the sense like he was he was not 
a real somebody until until they made them and and so but you know that goes to, that goes to a point you gave earlier which I want to reemphasize here because you just made it again in a different way I think which is that this is not built on a cult of personality that this this is not this is not how these guys are built which is very interesting because it comes to the charisma argument when it comes to leadership of all this you know I always thought that's a little bit misplaced I and mean, I think I think there's some truth to that when it came to bin Laden uh some truth to it but um you know Overall, when you look at how these organizations tick, you know, as you said, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was not, a, he was not exactly giving, you know, lengthy sermons before he was named uh, Caliph. He wasn't a guy who was well known on the street. He's not a guy who, you know, is going to be out there inspiring others just by his words or, you know, his appearances. That wasn't him at all. He very rarely spoke on audio messages. And then one of his few, you know, he gave the, the, his video appearance. I think it was his first video appearance is when he gives the, from the pulpit in the Mosul, right? In the Mosque of Mosul. I mean, that's the first time I... First time we ever saw him is, is then. So it's not like charisma was really the drawing factor with him at all. Um, you know, and, and you can see the Islamic State, we follow them obviously in all their media to this day. And they're still, you know, yeah, they've taken a lot of setbacks, but they are still functioning. They are still humming along in some areas. And they're, you know, they've they've had a lot of declarations of allegiance or, or pledges of bayah to the new emir. Um, you know, so it's again, it's not a this, you can't say it's a charisma thing because this guy hasn't spoken publicly at all, right? As far as we could tell, you no audio or video messages from him whatsoever. Yeah, the last one was the spokesman again. I mean, they yeah. they're they're almost going for an anti charisma model. The way we understand it, I know my my partner Herrera and I think a lot about leadership succession, not necessarily about the the leader targeting, like you said. I mean. Uh, the the leader and we think yeah there's there's a little bit of a misperception that you have to be charismatic to hold a, an insurgent organization together it almost is very intuitive like well this is a decentralized organization you need to have something but they they the charisma they needed Zarqawi gave them and then once he was dead he served the purpose and they're able to transition to much more of what they call routinized which means you have a much more normal leader who's very subdued and it's all about the rules and the traditions within the organization and the bureaucracies. And, you know, they weigh in occasionally, but, you know, as you saw Abu Bakr, very boring, nothing, not, and then they, they, if they want excitement, they can just pipe in Zarqawi speeches in the background of their videos. And that just fires people up naturally and will continue to do so until this organization completely disappears. If that ever happens, hopefully it does, but um, they don't need that from their leaders. So we haven't seen Almala. He's, he probably is, they're probably keeping him alive. You know, they really need to keep him alive because he is that continuity. Uh, but at the same time, he's got, he's got the title and he'll weigh in when he needs to, um, but otherwise, they kind of have a brain trust of people who all kind of have the same experiences now, all fought the Americans. You know, they, they have different skill sets, whether it's econ managing economic stuff or crime uh, or uh, the religious stuff. So he's going to be kind of responsible, even though he's not, a, you know, a high level cleric, uh, as you would imagine, or, or that exists in the Islamic world. You know, it's going to be good enough for the Islamic State. More importantly, he understands the Islamic State's theology, right? Their distinct spin on a theology, and he's he's been in the Sharia since since the, since the beginning of the state uh, structure, at least. And uh, so he's got all that credibility. So they'll want to keep him alive, minimize his risk, and then you know let everybody else, his lieutenants, do all the stuff. You know, and that, that's where the number two of Al Qaeda joke comes in again, right? Like, right. you know, those are the people who are going to take the risk. And there's probably a few that are going to be Qureshis who have some kind of documented Qureshi tie who are sitting in that bench in case something, in case he gets found. And then they'll go through this whole thing again. But it's a, it's almost a battle drill for them now. They kind of, and they've got it down. I mean, the impressive thing and the scary thing at the same time is, you know, they lost Abu Bakr. He, he wasn't charismatic, but he's still their first caliph and he you know the mosul and the triumph and the all the victory stuff and then and then you lose them the way you do at a very critical time at the end of the caliphate period where it kind of goes down and the question is do your affiliates stay with you and they they did because they've kind of built this it's not the caliph it's the position right it's it's not right. it's not the caliph it's the caliph right if that makes any sense whatsoever it's not the person who's the caliph it's the position of the caliph and yes you're going to pay individual allegiance to him but it's just not about that particular person 
I'll give you I'll give you one more question on this, and then Bill's got a question for you, and we're gonna. Well, Tom, can I jump in here because it's sure, it follows sure. right on the charisma. Yeah, bit. go right for it. Yeah, yeah, and Craig, I could not agree with you anymore. I think this idea that you know it's a very Western idea that a leadership of an insurgency or of any group whatsoever needs to be charismatic. I mean, look, you know, Zawahiri, right? He's nine years. He's probably one of the most uncharismatic people, at least according to Westerners, that we'll find. And yet not a single Al-Qaeda organization defected when Osama bin Laden was killed. Look, I, I look at someone like Siraj Akhani, who's uh, the dep- one of two deputy emirs of the Taliban, probably considered one of the most charismatic figures within the jihadist world. And we have one photograph of him. I think there's maybe one or two recordings of his out there on record. Maybe there's four or five. He's They're charismatic in a way that we as Westerners don't understand. They're charismatic based on their actions, based on their deeds, based on their beliefs. That's what that's what appeals to the jihadists, in my opinion, and not to not this you know, this, uh, you know, Che Guevara type charisma that we think is required for to lead a, a jihadist insurgency. Yeah. But if you look at like the leadership targeting or decapitation literature in the, in academia, the, the, one of the operating assumptions is that, that, that you have to be, you're charismatic if you're a leader of these kind of organizations. And that's just, I don't think that's true. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Craig. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I, we we, uh, we talked a little bit about this with uh, Ambassador Brown, Edmund Fitton Brown, was on our last episode of the podcast. You know, one of the things about Zawahiri that people miss in terms of the charisma point is that, you know, he's not trying to do the hothead propaganda that ISIS puts out that gets the, that gets the youth all motivated. That's not, you know, as the nerd who sat through probably every Zawahiri lecture at this point, and I have sat through them all, right, uh, or, or virtually all of them, right? They are boring. They are, they are, they are boring, but they are... But he's having a philosophical or religious debate with uh, people throughout the Islamic world, so to speak, who disagree with him. You know, like, you know, like, look, in, in 9-11 in 2019, he's very angry that people still, you know, a lot of sheikhs and scholars disagree with 9-11, you know. So he wants to have that argument. Now, it's a boring argument in a lot of ways for us to listen to or, or try and summarize, but it is it is the argument he's trying to have, you know. Uh, but let's – let's. I got one last point for you, and maybe we can wrap it up. Uh, uh, and we got to have you on again. Again, you've got a standing invitation. You're one of the few. Uh, Doc, anytime you want to come on and talk about anything. Anything you want – anytime you want to come on and talk about anything, you, got, you, can, you can come on. Uh, but, you know, Mala, I mean, you know, there's been some talk about, you know, ISIS and al-Qaeda. We don't see any evidence that ISIS is willing to reconcile with al-Qaeda at this point. Uh, Mala is the new caliph now, so to speak. And he, as you said, he solicited all those pledges of allegiance to him from all the provinces. They've got that structure in place. Um, you know, in some places they're stronger than others, of course. There's an ebb and flow to all this. You know, we, we got all the caveats, right? But, you know, what do you think about this guy? I mean, he, he doesn't strike me. I mean, again, this is speculation, so I have absolutely zero intelligence here. But just, just looking through all this and going through everything, how the Islamic State has at, reacted after Baghdadi's death now, and knowing a little bit about this guy from these files and from other evidence and from what's happened here, he doesn't strike me as a guy who wants to sort of uh, have a come to terms with Al-Qaeda at this point or Zawahiri or anybody else along the lines. But, uh, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, that that's a great uh, that's a great angle I hadn't really thought of is what what would his um, you know, I know there are certain there's certain pretty influential folks talking about that being a possibility. And I, I do think it could be a possibility. And, you know, I would say this guy is pretty pragmatic and I don't actually I still don't think we really know what Abu Bakr was really about. Like people try to tell us what they thought about him or he was this or was that. Yeah. You, you had to, you had to do a lot of deduction. You just had to, I, yeah, I, yeah. I have no idea. I'll tell you, yeah. I have no idea. And I've, yeah. I've read as much as I could on him and thought about him a lot, but I have no idea what he was really like, but I got the feeling that that was always going to be an impossibility under our yeah. doctor, right? Like I just got that feeling and yeah. uh, either that or, or Adnani was out on his own. But, you know, yeah. again, Abu Bakr was boring, but he had that attack dog in Adnani sure. who was, you know, who went after Al Qaeda and had the yeah. chops to do it, who went after other jihadi rivals and who went after the United States and Europe and everybody else and, you know, did external ops. And I mean, but with him gone, that's it'd be interesting. Muhammad Al Farqan is also, again, I'll, I'll go back to the brain trust as a crutch yeah. on this answer and say, you know, the brain trust gets to decide and, and it, it, they, 
for 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 better or for worse for them, they, I think they rely on this group decision making process a little bit more than we might understand. Mm-hmm. And because they got to live with it, they all have to live with it, right? They're all subject to the same kind of uh, sanctions there uh, if it's, if they're wrong. And so, um, you know, Mohammed Al Khan, who's kind of one of the geniuses behind the Islamic State, and you, you're really hard to find anything on him. He's the media. He's the he's the genius behind the media. Yep. But he was also a hardliner from from a lot of the leaked, dis, you know, dissenters talked about. And uh, so he's one. He's gone. He was killed right. in a drone strike 2016. Mohammed Al Anani's gone also in 2016. There was a double decapitation on the media department, yep. which is also where two of these bigwigs were. And uh, obviously Abu Bakr being dead. You know, I think Miles Miles got a little bit. I don't see why he would do it to be honest. But I mean, I think there's more of a chance of it happening than than people than before. Let's put it that way. That might still be a low, low yeah. possibility. Um, and so, so that, you know, if, yeah, and you never well, you, know, you, 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 you got, never you know got, what's you going got on. To, you got the heart of the question, basically. We, we don't know. I mean, I said this is all speculative because we don't know. I mean, who, who the hell? We don't know. There's all sorts of communications between these guys that come to light after the fact, and we don't know what's going on behind the scenes right now, you know. But you actually came right to the point that Bill and I have nerded out about a bunch of times, which is, you know, there are a lot of these guys' Islamic states hierarchy have been killed. Um, you know, and they were central to the rivalry. Um, you know, we we thought that basically, if they, you know, if that had happened earlier in the process, there may have been more of a, a ability for reconciliation early on. You know, but sort of, you know, if you look through sort of what they're putting out as an institution throughout the Islamic State, there's a lot of anti Al Qaeda messaging to this day, and I can't, I gotta believe that that has sunk in to a certain extent institutionally across the board, you know, that it's not something that, that, but, but again, we don't know. I mean, you don't know if they're going to have a a turnabout on this stuff, uh, you know, going forward or somebody's going to, you know, have a change of opinion. But Mala to me, you know, I, I look through this guy's stuff and, um, you know, I don't know. We don't, we don't know enough about him to really know what he, what he thinks about all that. He hasn't actually commented on any of this stuff, you know, publicly at all uh, or at all publicly comment on anything. So we don't really know. Yeah. Um, and that's not unusual. Again, Abu Bakr did not. He made one. He made a speech after a year, and it was uh, Osama bin Laden's uh, eulogy, yeah. and it was very short and perfunctory. Yeah. And uh, although he did say he did say we we translated and retranslated it several times in that speech, he did say um, basically that you have faithful men here in Iraq to Zawahiri, which was one of the indications that he was you know that the, you know because there was the whole idea that the Islamic State of Iraq was out of the Al Qaeda fold as of two thousand six. I think there's a lot of evidence that shows that that's wrong, you know. Um, but but that speech, which was the eulogy for Bin Laden, you know, was was very much within the Al Qaeda fold of speech, you know. Um, and there's there's actually one document, by the way, and I'll leave you on this thought. Actually, this whole episode is reminding me that I've got stuff I've got to send you from Bin Laden's compound that I need your help processing. And I don't know what the hell is wrong with me that I haven't sent you yet. I got a bunch. I got a bunch of audio files. We got to get you working on this stuff and get your team working on it because we're trying to expand the pool of people looking at that stuff. Um, you know, there's one file where it mentions that you know basically Baghdadi had been selected and that the the message had come in from Iraq. Do we want him to be the temporary emir or do we want to sort of pass off on it? Uh, it's an interesting message. It's very provocative, actually. Uh, we're going to get back to that at some point. But um, you know, I guess anything else to add here, Craig or Bill? Leave uh, leave it here for our listeners. Yeah, I just follow up. You know, one I think. I think a lot of the attention that gets given to whether these two major groups merge misses the fact that these groups never really merge. Uh, I mean, they do. I mean, they both, they all start off as mergers, right? But then once, once the merger, once honeymoon periods are over on these mergers, uh, these Islamic states collected groups over its lifestyle, but usually those are independent groups. I, what I think you've seen, like with going back to um, Ansar al-Sunnah, is that it's individual defections that tell you the real story of what's going on. I mean, a lot of the Islamic State's early leadership came from Ansar al-Sunnah. That that gave the bad blood between them. Obviously, Islamic State comes from al-Qaeda. So, you know, at some point, the bad blood becomes pretty, you know, know, unsurmountable. And I think that's where you're at on that. And so it would be interesting to see, I think one of the, organization have to be in complete crisis for for something like that to happen which is what happens to answer all sooner they go into complete crisis and right. say okay fine we'll just join you and that's only locally and then not, they didn't not not everybody did that the kurds really just went their own way and sure you know, end up in syria yeah you still you still have an answer all islam faction today in syria which is you know still aligned with the al-qaeda factions although the serious stuff we're not getting off on that right now because that's just a total mess to try and tease out what the heck's going on there bill you got anything else or no gonna- 
No, th- just to thank you for joining us, Craig. It's always a pleasure. We look forward to having you back on again. It's just we could we could take two hours and do and do this, but uh, thank you for your hour. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for your time and uh, yeah, get after the documents. Anyone's interested, they're they're right there on the CTC website. Pretty easy to find and uh, pretty fascinating. Won't take too long. No, and that was a great service. I think anytime we get stuff out to the public, we're we're big fans of transparency on all this stuff, and it, it needs to be done across the board. And uh, we're very uh, thankful for you coming on the podcast, Craig, once again, and also for all the work you do on in this, these issues, which we think are crucial. Um, and, again, you have a standing invitation, but uh, you can take us up on that anytime you want. Um, but thank you to our audience again for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. And we will see you again next week. <laughs>